Hello and welcome to Wellbeing. I'm Graham Wilson. Today we're going to have a look at what's going on in our brains when we try and do two or more things at once, also known as multitasking. And we're joined in the studio by Professor Frini Karyanidis. She's the Director of the Functional Neuroimaging Laboratory and convener of the Psychological Processes Hub, Priority Research Centre for Stroke and Brain Injury in the School of Psychology at the University of Newcastle. She's also President of the Australasian Cognitive Neuroscience Society. Frini, welcome to the studio. Thank you, Graham. I think you're a very busy person from <laughs> what I've just said. Aren't we all? <laughs> well, it's an interesting correlation because our topic today is about doing a lot of things. Can we, in fact, multitask? And some people will say you can't. So what we're, we should probably define what multitasking yep. is, first of all. We define multitasking as doing lots of things simultaneously, but in fact... What we don't do is multitask, we task switch. So we switch between lots of different tasks, but our brain is really geared to only being able to attend to one thing at any point in time. And is that widely understood or are there still some people who say, no, you can do lots of things at once? A good colleague from the uh, University of, of uh, Utah in the States, David Strayer, who's done a lot of work in this, will, has shown that there is a very small proportion of the population, 2%, who can actually multitask. So what's the difference between them and other people cognitively? I mean, are they built differently or they're geniuses or what? We really don't know. But most of us think we can multitask uh, when you actually make people multitask in, in an experimental setting, only about 2% can do it. What kind of tasks do you give people when you want to study what's going on? Okay, so, so for example, um, you would be giving them tasks where they will have to monitor, say, two sources of information simultaneously. Um, they may have to be driving a car and responding to barriers that are coming, swerving, while simultaneously solving a mathematical equation, things like that. So that would be the multitasking. The task switching, which is the work that I do, um, I've been doing for, for more than I get to think about, um, is looking at how people pick up and drop tasks. So if I ask you to classify a, a picture as a man or a woman versus classify that same picture as happy or sad, you're shifting back and forth between two types of classification criteria. And depending on how much information, how easy the distinction is and how easy it is to differentiate between the emotions, that will determine how well and how easily you can switch. What makes that more easy for some people to do than others? There's a lot of factors. Um, the mechanism that allows us to do this mm -hmm. might, might help. So the mechanism that allows us to do this is um, the way that our frontal lobes of the brain, the areas of the brain that are involved in this, high, we call it higher order processing, these very sophisticated levels of decision-making, problem-solving. The more flexible our brain is, the, more, the better it can multitask or, or switch between tasks. Um, it develops slowly over young ages. It declines slowly in older ages. And it can vary as a function of the types of activities that we are engaged in. The more we do it, the better we are. Practice. All right, so look, let's look at that then. Practice, say a pianist. 
you look at this mass of notes. So you have to understand, you have to have learned somewhere to read what they mean. But then a normal performance, you can't read those all individually for two hands and make all that happen. So what process has gone on there this, mm, in that's that a, learning? That's, a, that's an excellent question. Our brain relies on the ability to filter all of the very complicated sources of information that we get and make sense of it at different levels. So there's a, there are levels at which our brain is doing things automatically. And the more efficient we are at whatever it is that we want to do, the more automatic processes we can, the more uh, little sets of processes, we call them task sets, sort of like little routines. The more routines we automatize, the more time and resources we have to do other things. If you think of a pianist, a concert pianist has practiced for hundreds, thousands of hours. And in the process, the reading of the notes and the translation of a note to a a letter that means something and the letter to a position on the keyboard and the position of the of the notes to the position of the fingers and how the fingers interact that has taken a long long time to develop but once they develop that the brain is doing a lot of stuff automatically without them needing to do it so if you have a pianist and you are imaging their brain you use a magnetic uh, resonance imaging uh, scanner yes and they're lying in the scanner and imagining that they are playing a piece of music their brain many centers of their brain looks as if they are actually playing it because the connections are there the only thing they're not doing is actually pressing the buttons mm. the keys of the, the piano. keys on the piano um so they've converted, they've summarised all that information. They're not consciously thinking about those patterns on the page now. They, they see it quickly and the body says, I know how to interpret that. And, and yeah, exactly, exactly. And part of that would be, have to be muscle memory, surely. It is. It's muscle memory, but it's also these routines. These routines are, that's why they call, we call them task sets. It's the link between a stimulus and a response. And rather than me having to think, okay, this C, I press this button, and D, I press that button, this has become a little routine that I call up, and it's very easily conducted. What I then still have to do is monitor that, mm -hmm. because I'm constantly listening to my playing, and if I make a mistake, I have to figure that one out and, and stop and go back and fix it. Part of the practice is doing that error detection and correction seamlessly so that we in the audience don't even see that they're making these corrections. What if the performer then thinks, aren't I clever, I'm multitasking? What I'm trying to get at is mm. can they then interject something that can cause that to fail? Yes. Can we do it? That process. Yes. Other, yes, you can. Um, definitely. Um, and part of the training of a, of a pianist, for example, is to not fail when somebody coughs in the audience. Right. Um, or if, if, if something, if they make a mistake, not to stop and correct it and continue playing as if they hadn't made the mistake. Um, but then if you ask a pianist who's playing uh, Bach sonata to count backwards from 10, <laughs> that's gone now. <laughs> mm. Yes, okay. Whereas 2% of the people in the world may be able to do it. 2% yes. of the people in the world, and then probably not pianists. Right, okay. All right, so let's take another example. I'm making a cup of tea. Mm -hmm. 
a child doesn't know how to do that. I mean, a baby, they haven't developed the muscular control, the desire to, any of that. So all of that has to come first, doesn't it? Yes. Taking that further on, somebody who might have had a stroke now has to relearn all of that. Exactly. That's very true. One of the examples that I give in my classes is is cooking spagbol. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all consider spaghetti bolognese the easiest thing to cook, but it is such a complicated set of subcomponents, routines, um, and it often requires simultaneous tracking of these routines while you're boiling the water for the pasta, cutting the onion, you're frying the mince. All of those have to occur simultaneously, otherwise it'll take very long. Um, then... Once we learn it, we're not thinking about it. But if a phone rings, we're out of the room and we may overboil, you know, spill the water. When a person with stroke or a person with dementia, depending on on the location of the stroke, obviously, um, that may interrupt some of those processes physically, the motor aspects, but also cognitively, the ability to sequence these tasks. So keeping it rolling, keeping the process rolling, they've gone out of the room to answer the phone. They're not monitoring what's going on, to use the expression you used before. Yes, but most of us are aware of it's going, that it is going on. And mm. we will, I mean, now we've got our mobile phones, but if we go out of the room to pick up the phone, you're aware, I've got to go back because yeah. the water will boil. Now, that's one of the difficulties with people in de- with dementia. If something distracts them, they're not holding that other task in working memory so that they say, I've got to go back. And they may, uh, uh, often you, you get accidents in the house, fires and such problems because they've forgotten the stove. There are a lot of analogies to a computer, aren't there? Like the types of memory in a computer, you can file things away to get them later, but you have to hold in the current working memory quite a lot of information in order to do a task. It's like that, isn't it, to be able to switch between things. You you, you can imagine your working memory like your RAM and your long-term memory like your hard drive. Let's look at technology. Mm -hmm. Is there a whole set of distractions or multitasking imperatives that come out of that because computers can do so many things at the same time and if you're sitting in front of one Mm -hmm. you can disappear down lots of different rabbit holes Mm -hmm. can't you well it's interesting that we think the computers can do a lot of different things at the same time but again they can only do one thing unless they've got multiple cores Mm -hmm. that will allow them to do and you can think of us as multiple core systems as well we need to move between them what has happened and i've seen it in my own generation as i've sort of shifted we are now at the point where we have the capability, as in our environment, the opportunity, if you like, to do so many things at once. Um, and that is, it is quite addictive for us to do many things at once. We feel that we are so much in control of things. Um, Why do we do that? What's the need to do everything at once? Um, we think efficiency. Um, we think we are extending ourselves into more things because we think that we can handle it. Um, but also every message we get through uh, our phone, every post that somebody likes on our Facebook, every it gives us a little buzz. In fact, people have seen, we've seen that they are, our, our reward system in the brain re- responds the same way to somebody liking our text, our, our message on Facebook as it does to smoking a cigarette which is another reward or taking a a drug which is rewarding 
You're listening to Wellbeing, and our guest today is Professor Frini Karyanidis, and we're talking about multitasking. You've done a, a new study, or you're part of a new study, that's showing that younger people can do this task switching more easily than older people. What's mm-hmm. going on there? So would you like me to tell you a little bit about the study? Please do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what we've done is actually this is work with uh, Scott Brown and Guy Hawkins here at uh, in psychology as well, and with Mark Stivers from the University of uh, California, Irvine. And Mark has had access to a very large data set from the Lumosity brain training app. So one of the brain training apps that you can get on your phone and, and train yourself in, what, in, in a number of different interesting tasks. So he has had access to one of these data sets. And, has, and, and there are people who play these games a lot of times. Um, so he got data from people from 18 to over 90. And what we looked at is the way that people are um, uh, changes in performance as a function of practice over the 60 games, which is sort of an average of what people will do if they if they buy a task, uh, the the application, as well as older people have played 10,000 games, so a lot of practice. As we expect, the more you practice, the better you get. At the 60 game level. Um, Younger adults became um, perfect, well, were performing at, at plateau, so we're not improving anymore, faster than older adults, um, but older adults across all age groups were also showing improvement. And that's expected, right? Practice improves and older people don't improve as much as younger people for the same amount of practice. What was really interesting is that those older people who practice 10,000 times or more were starting to, a proportion of them were starting to show performance levels similar to 20 year olds or 30 year olds. And that's pretty interesting. That hasn't been shown before. Mm. Would the, the 20 year olds have done 2,000 practices of that or not? No. The okay. 20 year olds did the 60 and they plateaued. They were not showing further improvement. Um, but when you look at the very, very highly practiced older people, a proportion of them were performing as much younger adults um, and a large proportion was were performing as if they were 10 or 20 years younger. Okay, so older people need not despair. They think, oh, I'm too old to learn that. Nonsense, they can. That is definitely the case. Well, we nice know so much now about the older brain. We used to think that, you know, you get your synapses and your neurons and then there's only decline. We know that neuroplasticity happens in the older brain in different ways, but, yeah, you can learn. <laughs> so it's new pathways or the brain yep. just isn't done sorting itself out yet? It's, every learning is new pathways. Okay. So it's been, you've reached where you've reached, but that doesn't mean that you don't continue to learn. We haven't reached capacity of learning, if you like. Can you learn how to learn? Hmm, that's an interesting philosophical question. <laughs> now, to make yourself... Yes. More efficient at learning things because I mentioned earlier, you know, you can short circuit what's going on with yourself in performance, for instance. You, mm-hmm. you get nerves or anxiety or whatever. So you're asking, can we learn new ways of acquiring information? Yeah. Yes, definitely. There are efficient ways of learning and inefficient ways of learning. Um, for example, we know that rote learning is, is inefficient. You've learned something just to learn. It's like memorizing a phone number 
just to use it soon. It's efficient for now, but you're not going to remember it in the longer mm. term. Deeper learning, association learning between things is much more efficient. Yeah. The learning environment is important. So distractions we know uh, can impede. Um, that's part coming back to your uh uh, the question you had earlier about the complicated environments and we've, mm. um, we've got our computer on with our Facebook page and our um, messages, emails coming in and messages coming in and that is distracting. We know about the effects of distraction on learning and these affect all ages. They're not specific to younger people. I guess it's important to say too that the brain, while it's learning something, it's a two-way street, isn't it? You can say, um, I'm not learning this very well, so I'm perceiving my environment. It's trying to teach me something, but we're going to have to look at it a different way, or can you explain that differently, or I've got to get out of here into a yeah, more quiet yeah, space. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Uh, uh, if you think about our brain not so much as a, as a computer but as a multi-level, um, hierarchical levels of control... Um, at the highest level is this concept of metacognition. We are watching ourselves do what it is that we're doing and evaluating how we are doing it. And it is that that sort of metacognition process allows us to evaluate what is an optimal learning environment for us. Well, I actually need to turn the radio off to be able to solve this problem, mm. for instance. Mm. I interviewed somebody here once who said he didn't learn very well at university by going and sitting in lectures. He read. He learned everything by reading. And mm -hmm. he made a, a decision. Fortunately, his university didn't disqualify him from doing this, but he thought he won't go to lectures anymore. He'll just read the material. Well, there are different ways of learning and different preferences. We believe, as educators, that there is... A benefit from multiple approaches to mm -hmm. learning. Mm -hmm. um, for some people who are really disciplined, they don't need to come to lectures. Yeah. But for others, there are more than, more than one ways of getting the information. Mm. Let's go back to a child in school. Mm -hmm. You don't want to do it all at once. All work and no play makes Jack or Jill dull. <laughs> so do you have to refresh the pathways? Yeah. Yep. You do? That's, you, you can think of it as refreshing the pathways um, or you can think of it as allowing your system to take the information in. Um, we know at an educational system, at a primary, secondary uh, and, and university, we know that crammed learning is worse than spaced learning. Right. So if you space the information, you will learn better and with repetition you learn better. If we think of very young kids primary school, early primary, preschool, we are now increasingly understanding that there's a need for directional learning, how to read words, but that a lot of the learning happens in the interactions that the children have mm. with the material and with others. Mm. And this um, directed learning type of approach that we have, one way teacher to student, is not effective in building learning capabilities um, in the future. What happens with the research that you're doing? Because you're part of a, a stroke unit, aren't you, with the research? Is that what's driving part of it? 
Um, I don't do work in stroke per se. I do some work with um, looking at cognitive changes that are happening as a function of, of mild uh, neurological events like uh, transient ischemic attack and minor stroke. Um, but most of my work is focused around this area of higher order cognitive functions in different parts of the lifespan. So some of the work is in babies, the first year of life, and looking at how these early processes develop as a function of of um, the interaction uh, that they have with the parents, the um, loads that they have in terms of um, familial um, factors that may load onto their development. Um, I do work with adolescents and young adults looking at development of cognitive control processes and risk-taking behaviours. I also look at um, the healthy ageing process and trying to understand what are the whether we can detect very early cognitive changes um, that are predictive of emerging cognitive decline and intervene early to reduce that and the role of vascular risk factors and neurological events on cognition. What have you discovered there? So a lot of the ageing work taps back into the, um, the study that we were talking about earlier. We're looking at the changes that, that a lot of the um, ageing-related changes in healthy adults are very subtle. And being able to detect them early allows us to develop targeted and personalised approaches to train people that would then allow us to improve those specific difficulties that people have and try and bring them back into sort of better functioning or mm. delay the, um, the decline that happens as a function of age. So a lot of the work that, that I'm doing is really in detection and using this early detection to change future pathways. Um, so, for example, as I said, one of my blue sky approaches, one of the things that I hope would be happy if, I, if my research led to in the future would be sensitive uh, tasks that can be delivered over time in the same way that we get our blood pressure tested at the GP or you know, blood cholesterol level, have an assessment of your cognitive functioning that is sensitive enough to detect early points of change. Um, and rather than wait for um, much larger cognitive decline to happen before the family or the, or the person themselves says, something's happening with my memory, something's happening with my decision-making ability, being able to pick up those people very, very early on as minute changes are happening and then have training programs such as the one that we were talking about earlier that would train that particular capability in that person. So you're scaffolding that person's ability just as it's starting to decline um, and maintaining it for longer. Nice. Mm. And coming back to where we began with multitasking, switching between things very mm -hmm. quickly, when does it all become too much? Are there some long-term effects of trying to do too much at once? Yes, there's, there's definitely evidence for that. So our attention is like a spotlight. Um, we focus on one place, on one thing in our visual field or on one source of information in our, in our auditory field, and that is what we are processing at that time. Anything else is distracting, 
but we're also programmed in a way that we are monitoring the surroundings of our auditory environment or our visual environment for other things that are important because that's also a survival approach. So if there's a startling noise, we will turn to it even though we want to ignore it. If we are constantly working at very high levels, then we are using high resources. I mean, our, our brain is the instrument in our body that is using up most of the calories <laughs> that we consume. So if you are ramping that system up all the time, then you start losing, you start getting side effects of it, if you like. You will not be encoding information as deeply because you're trying to manage all of these sources of information. You won't retain information as well. Um, so there are disadvantages of being on, as we say, all the time. It is exhausting for the system. And what's the best way to be off? That's, that's a very interesting <laughs> question. We know sleep is yes. important, is very important. We know we're learning so much more about sleep. We're also learning a little bit about the idle state of our brain. So you and I probably are in the generation would be sitting in the back of the, our parents' car and feeling bored to tears and looking out the window. And now everyone's on a mobile phone screen all the time, so we don't get that off time. Mm -hmm. the, the type of activity that our brain was doing when we were looking out the window is called the resting state. Now we know that it has a function. It's the resting state networks of the brain are ramped up and our task-based networks are dampened down. When you then have a task to do, the resting state networks dampen down and our task-based go up. And we're understanding a little bit more over time about the importance of those resting state networks and how, the type of function that they do. Very illuminating. I very much appreciate your time today, Frini. Thank Thanks for much. coming in. Thank you, Graham. Professor Frini Karianidis has been our guest today on Wellbeing, the Director of the Functional Neuroimaging Laboratory and Convener Psychological Processes Hub, Priority Research Centre for Stroke and Brain Injury in the School of Psychology at the University of Newcastle. She's also President of the Australasian Cognitive Neuroscience Society. I'm Graham Wilson. Thanks for listening. And all of us at Wellbeing wish you well. <laughs>